I sent out a question on Twitter saying, please fill in the question, how do I test blank? To find out what people wanted to know how to test. I got a lot of responses. David Lord agreed to answer them with me. And in the process, we come up with lots of great general advice on how to test just about anything. Do you want to get better at Python? Now is an excellent time to take an online course. Whether you're just learning Python or need to go deep into things like APIs and async, our friends at TalkPython Training have a top-notch course for you. Visit talkpython.fm test to find your next level. That's talkpython.fm test. Stick around until the end of the show, also for a chance to win a free course. Welcome to Testing Code. Welcome to Testing Code. I am really excited to have David Lord on the show. David, this is the first time you've been on, right? Yep, you finally got me on. <laughs> it's been like two or three years since we met at a conference and you said, hey, you should come on. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I think I, I met David by sitting next to him at dinner at one of the PyCons. And then we chatted for a little while. But David, I know you mostly as one of the people that helps keep Flask alive. But is that true? And is that is there more to David than that? Is that true? Yeah, I guess I'd say that's true. I'm the lead maintainer for Pallets, which is the community organization that maintains Flask and all the other libraries related to Flask. And I've been doing that for about five years now. I've slowly been adding more maintainers as I meet people at conferences or get people interested on GitHub, but it usually comes down to me to be doing the big reviews and making the releases and everything. Okay. So under pallets, there's Flask, but there's also, everybody should be familiar with, but there's also Click and Jinja and Workzug. Verkzug. Verkzug. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong also. <laughs> okay. Those are the main big hitters, right? Yeah. Okay. So Flask is the web application framework that that's definitely the most popular, but the other libraries are all used a ton also. Jinja is a templating language that can be used for any type of application. It Flask uses it to like provide HTML templates if you want to render your website. Other completely different sorts of applications like Ansible or uh, Salt use it for configuration management. Oh wow, cool. Sort of a configuration language. Click is kind of the equivalent to Flask, but for command line instead of web applications. So it lets you plug together command line commands and groups and options and arguments and all that sort of stuff. So it's a framework for building CLIs. Yeah, I'm a longtime Click user and recently trying to switch to Typer because it's fun. Mm -hmm. But Typer's built on top of Click also. So Yeah, Typer's pretty cool. One of the big things we're working on right now that I think Sebastian's aware of too is click provides kind of tab completion abilities so you like uh, if you install a completion script for your uh, command you can hit like tab to like see what options are available or what values for the options except it's really basic right now in click and okay we're completely rewriting the completion system so that it's overridable at every level and customizable so extensions can add new shells and all sorts of stuff it's going to be pretty exciting okay that should carry forward to Typer also. Cool. Well, this is going to be an interesting episode. One of the things that David's agreed to do is I sent out a, a message on Twitter a couple weeks ago, I guess. 
And the question really was, how do I test blank? And wanting to know what people want to know how to test. And I got a lot of answers. What I'm going to do is I'm going to run through a lot of these and David's going to help me answer them. I guess let's just do the first one. Sure. Josh Peak asked, he said, I'm trying to teach interns and colleagues What is a good test? So I was curious what your opinions are and what the Flask philosophy is for testing. Yeah. So I think my opinions are basically the Flask philosophy. That's where I got my opinions from. Okay. Before I started really working with Flask and maintaining Flask, I had kind of worked with tests a little bit, kind of, you know, in college courses and all that sort of stuff, but never really like did a good job at them, (laughs) writing tests and everything. So my first exposure to like, fairly thorough test was Flask. And this is kind of my interpretation, I guess, of what, uh, you know, what I saw there, but like kind of what I've done going forward since I started maintaining was testing, like not worrying about testing every false positive or false negative. You can not trying to think of every corner case. Usually in my experience, it's been enough to test the thing you're building. So if you're creating a feature, you know what your feature, you want your feature to do test those things about the feature, right? And if you miss a corner case, somebody will report a bug eventually, and then you add another test, right, for that use case as well. So it's kind of like an iterative process. You start with something you want. People say, oh, I need to do this, and you kind of add on, add on, as opposed to trying to think of everything ahead of time. So like if I was going to, if I didn't have automated tests and I was just doing manual testing, That's sort of generally how people use manual tests. For just as a developer, you're trying to get some feature to work, so you'd code some stuff up and try it and see if it works and move on. And is that kind of line up with how you're writing automated tests then? I guess so. I don't want it to sound like we're we're only manually testing or we're not like thoroughly testing, but we're not. It's hard to describe, I guess. But I, I think of this as functionality testing. So we're just essentially testing to make sure that the the expected functionality works as expected. Yeah. Does the thing work as documented? We go, I usually go a little beyond that. Like most of the time I'll be reviewing a PR. I'll see what the initial issue was. I can read that. I can see what the code is that changed. And I can look at the tests and say, I've just gotten like good at this every time, but I can just say like, oh yeah, these tests look pretty good for like, they seem to cover this stuff. Or, oh wait, there's this huge block of code that clearly you can get into, but we don't test it all. Okay. So I haven't really used coverage itself too much in a while. Flask has the ability to do some, to test, it's a web framework. So we're bringing up a a web browser to test for the automated tests. Yeah. So when I was referring to tests in Flask, I meant like testing the internals, like the code of Flask, which I guess most of the time looks like actually testing an application written in Flask too. So a lot of tests will be here, create this little sample application that uses this feature, then run a request against it. But Flask does provide a, like a test client that doesn't actually require you to run a server. Okay. So it just simulates making a request with the right like WSGI environment and passing that to the Flask application and just letting it dispatch all its... uh, And does a lot of the internal Flask testing use that then? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, what I was saying was the Flask tests kind of fall into two categories. Either there's some like internal function or testing the function directly, or we're like, testing some sort of application, like some sort of flow through the framework that we want to result in something. So we'll actually write an application that would use that and then run a test request against it. Okay. And is there like a litmus test for how to decide what's what, or is it just whatever 
somebody thinks of to test a particular feature? Yeah, it really just depends on what's being written. I think in Flask nowadays, mostly it's going to be like, uh, let's see, like the last big feature we added was, so you have a view function, which is you get a request in that Flask dispatches to that view function, and then you return something from the view function to have Flask turn it into a response. And so previously, you could return a couple different things from that function, turn like a string, and that would automatically be interpreted as an HTML response. You could return a tuple, which could have a different status code besides the default of 200. And all the, it would kind of recognize these different types and turn them into a standard response. Something that a lot of people are using Flask for now is writing APIs. And so we have this JSONify function. You can pass in some data, it creates a JSON response. And as a shortcut to that, you can now return a dictionary from a view, and that's automatically turned into a JSON response. Oh, nice. Just like a string is turned into an HTML response. And so when we wanted to write a test for that, we literally just wrote a little application with a single view that returns a dictionary, and we made a request to it with the test client and said, okay, is the response type application JSON? It does the response decoded as JSON have the same data. Uh, so we actually did put together a little application. Okay. And I'm sure there were other tests too, but yeah, most of them end up being like here, create an application that does this feature. Okay, cool. Thank you, Datadog, for sponsoring this episode. Are you having trouble visualizing bottlenecks and latency in your apps and not sure where the issue is coming from or how to solve it? With Datadog's end-to-end monitoring platform, you can use their customizable built-in dashboard to collect metrics and visualize app performance in real time. Datadog automatically correlates logs and traces at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your Python applications. Plus, their service map automatically plots the flow of requests across your app architecture, so you can understand dependencies and proactively monitor the performance of your apps. Start tracking the performance of your apps, sign up for free, and install the agent, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. To get started, Visit testingcode.com slash datadog. Well, I don't know if we answered what is a good test. Well, let's just jump ahead. The next one is Nicholas Meiser. How do you test web app performance? You had a couple uh, follow-ups that, like, what kind of performance is the real yeah. question? Yeah, it could be single user speed or under load or throughput or... Yeah, this one I don't have a good answer for. I guess it's because, you know, we don't really know what kind of performance you're testing. But, like, I know there's tools like, oh, I'm trying to remember now. There's an Apache tool, JMeter, and there's some other basically like load testing tools. So you can point this tool at your running application and it will make a ton of requests and tell you what the performance is. How useful that is, I'm not sure. I don't personally write giant applications that have to perform under huge load. So I don't really do these sorts of things. Usually my applications that I write for work just scale maybe to two servers. Okay. Well, we're going to walk through a lot of these and I'm okay with the answer being like that. Like not really sure because I'd like to invite other people to come on. Um, I know that there are some people that really do care about testing web performance. I think that'd be fun. So please, if you're out there and listening and you know about this and you're like, oh my God, why didn't you recommend X? Well, then come on. I know there's... I haven't recommended it because I haven't <laughs> heard about it yet. Got a couple yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've heard of like things like swarm testing and stuff and ways to try to have like artificially build up load. And then there's a lot of people that say just do segment testing and test in the field and then there's your performance. It also really depends on like 
do you expect your web application to be your bottleneck? Like in my experience, at least the web application itself hasn't been the problem. It's like, have I optimized my SQL enough or am I dispatching tasks to a job queue instead of holding up workers? That sort of thing. Like, so things like, I guess you could identify by doing load testing, but the load testing itself wouldn't really oh, help interesting. necessarily. So you're kind of looking at the web app performance as a whole for your entire application and realizing that the bottleneck might not be your web server. It's probably database or something. Yeah, some other service that you might be talking to that's doing the real yeah, work. Yeah, interesting. And there's probably shortcuts for that. If your load testing is really on your database, you could probably test that separate, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Next, we've got Waylon Walker says, I just learned how to test cookie gutter templates. This would have been my question two days ago. So I wanted <laughs> to know. I asked him how, and he pointed me to a couple examples. I think I lost the links. But there's a PyTest plugin for cookie cutter templates. And then also looks like he pointed to cookie cutter data science. So it has some tests in place. I've never uh, tested cookie cutter templates. Yeah, I was going to look at, there's a cookie cutter for Flask called cookie cutter Flask. And I was going to see if they have tests, but if they do, I don't know. They're not called tests.py or anything. But yeah, like this is kind of general than just cookie cutter. And I don't know anything about PyTest cookie cutter, but if I don't know how to test something, I go and look at how that thing is tested. So if I don't know how to test cookie cutter, I would go and look and see, well, I would hope cookie cutter is testing itself, right? So it's probably setting up something that would test its functionality and then looking at it somehow. So you could kind of replicate that if nothing else. Yeah, but I mean, it, this is actually, I bring this up partly because I think it'd be fun to talk about testing cookie cutter stuff with somebody that knows what they're talking about. But also this example is, Hey, went out and looked at two examples of other projects using cookie cutter and looking at how their testing is working. So, which is neat. Like, Yeah. Same sort of thing. Like find a project that's using it already and see how they. Yeah. So I'm it. looking at it and it looks like there's some common, I'm looking at one of the data science one. There's some tests to see, you know, running the cookie cutter and making sure like, so cookie cutter will go and like has this base project or this cookie cutter project that it populates a new project for you. So a lot of the tests are, this file is supposed to exist. Does the file show up the right way? And I, mm -hmm. it's an interesting concept because I, yeah, I'd never even tried, but making sure that the licensing shows up correct and everything. So yeah, I would, I'd recommend this also. Go look at other examples. That's a lesson for every, not just cookie cutter, but other, how to test yeah. whatever. It's one of the beauties of open source. You can look at a lot of projects that have done it already. Occasionally, I've had to look at the tests just to figure out how to use a library, too. So not just how to test. Yeah. That's my favorite kind of documentation, well, right? Tests. Is yep, definitely. <laughs> I like it. So then the next one is Israel Fruchter, maybe. Sorry if I got your name wrong, Israel. The question is, how do I test my test framework, a.k.a. who will guard the guards? Well, I use PyTest, and PyTest has a whole bunch of tests inside of it, and we can look at those. Yeah, you could run the tests. You, know, you could just clone the repo and follow the instructions to set up your test environment and go. I wonder if PyTest tests itself yes. PyTest. I bet, I bet it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting chicken and egg problem, though. But I, at the same time, for instance, I was a uh, plugins uh, have to run to test a PyTest plugin. You have to run PyTest to run, you know, that you have to run PyTest to run the test that ends up running PyTest. It's definitely a, the harder case. 
And once you learn how to do that on a little tiny PyTest plugin project, you can learn how most of PyTest is being tested. But do you use PyTest or do you use unit test for Flask? Oh, we use PyTest. That conversion, all the projects were originally written using unit test. And then I think about a year before I started being a maintainer, another maintainer went through and just kind of did a fairly surface level rewrite of taking out unit test and making it runnable with PyTest, which doesn't require that many changes, to be honest, because PyTest kind of understands unit test. So I'm still today, there's plenty of old, like weird artifacts uh, from those days that I'll rewrite into like, oh, wait, we have this giant test that tests these like 20 different cases in a for loop. That should be parameterized, nice. right? So I still pull those okay. out even today. If anybody wants to contribute to Flask, just go through the tests and like turn them into like better parameterized tests. Please. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a fun job or fun volunteer opportunity. So neat. Next up, Will Robinson says, how do I test permission management in an application for a public-facing application. Do you know what permission management is? Yeah, I was trying to figure this one out. I was thinking they were maybe mean, maybe meaning like role-based authentication or something like that, where if this user has this role, they can access this resource, something like that, which to me just seems like any other sort of test, right? You're setting up some sort of precondition, you're running some, you're doing an action, and then you're looking, did I get the result I expected? So you would set up like, here's a user with these permissions. If I like request this thing. Oh, yeah. So assuming different parts of your application or different APIs, do API frameworks have permissions? I, I assume they do. Uh, it really depends. Like Flask doesn't come with anything. I mean, then you get like on the other end, Django, which does have a permission framework yeah. built in. So it has, it has users and permissions yeah, but built there's, in. There's a permission systems that you can build on top of Flask though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, I think like the new one I saw somebody working on was called Flask Praetorian or something like that. But there's also older ones like Flask Principle, Flask okay. Security. And this is different. This is like, I guess there's a, a couple angles that if that's what, like roles, so user role, like maybe admin versus reader or for different applications, you could imagine like if it was a CMS system, you might have editor permissions and writer permissions and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You set up a user with particular permissions and then uh, see if the activities that they're allowed to do work and then attempt some activities they're not supposed to do and uh, make sure those don't work, I guess. Now that I think about it, the Flask tutorial walks you through creating a little blog application that has login. I mean, single user login, you just pre-set username and password, but it still requires you'd be logged in to like post a new, make a new post, right? And so the tests in the tutorial show creating a little fixture that will let you perform login or perform login automatically before a test so that you will be logged in and can do an action or that you won't be logged in and you'll see an error message. Okay. Now, on the other side of it, I was thinking, I don't think this is part of the real question, but user authentication with different authentication systems, that seems like a related but completely different thing. Oh, you mean like, oh, if I have OAuth providers, like if I have Google login or something like that, how do yeah. you test that? Yeah, I don't know how you would test that. I mean, like if you really wanted to test it, you probably have to create some sort of live server environment to actually make an OAuth flow. But for applications I've written in the past, I just don't test that part because like the OAuth library I'm using is okay. tested. And I would hope that whatever OAuth provider I'm using is up. 
you know, and doesn't stop using OAuth all of a sudden or something, but you're kind of making an assumption that this is OAuth. So for those, I just fake like, yes, I am. I just like force a user to be logged in without going through the flow. And then I just, yeah, test. I'm glad I'm asking because I think that's a good point, not just with authentication, but other things as uh, this idea of if you're relying on a separate plugin or something, some other system to do part of your workflow, like authentication or something else, you don't necessarily, I guess it's a decision based for your project, but it's a reasonable decision to not test that part, at least in automated tests. You might want to test what happens if you can't get to that service. So like, what if Google Auth goes down for the day? Does your whole application fail also, or can people who are logged in just keep using it? You know, So you might want to like make sure your app doesn't blow up if the other thing goes away. But other than that, I don't really know what you would test. Yeah, and if you were testing it, that'd be a good place to stick some, like a fake service or something. Because I wouldn't want to be hitting Google up for my automated system anyway. But anyway. Oh, here's the big answer. So uh, the next question, Felipe Bidou. I should have had you try to do the names. No, I prefer you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday I was struggling with the philosophy behind testing SQL alchemy models and pedantic schemas in a fast API app, at which point testing something like that becomes vacuous and what should I test before that happens? I don't know what that means really, but what is the... I think they're trying to say like, how far should I go? Like down to what level should I test before I, like it's not meaningful to test that? Yeah. Yeah. And nicely, Sebastian Ramirez, the fast API person himself, came back and replied. So can you, do you understand Sebastian's answer and can you summarize? Uh, let's see. So. Yeah, he's saying basically the same thing that I would have said, which is, and I think we've kind of touched on this already, but that's you're not testing SQL Alchemy or Fast API. You're testing the assumptions about your code and your data, right? So instead of testing that, like, oh, does Fast API, you know, decode JSON data correctly? Well, yes, hopefully Fast API decodes JSON correctly. Otherwise, like, Fast API wouldn't be working at all. Right. Like that's already tested by Fast API itself. So instead you want to be testing like, oh, if I send data in this shape, did I get the custom validation error that I wrote? You know, or if I sent this data, does it end up as a object in the database that I can retrieve okay. later? So you don't need to like test you don't need to test things that Fast API itself or SQL Alchemy itself would already be testing. You can test the side effects of those things. You don't have to like completely avoid them either. I mean, like you might want to test like, hey, if I send this request, does it get validated? Even if I'm just using the standard validation that's yeah. built in. Okay, cool. And especially focus on what you were adding to the application. Right. Test your code first. And then if you find that like you're still missing coverage or you want to like, I think if you test your code first, you'll start to discover the other things you might want to Ooh, test. You said the magic word. You said coverage. <laughs> no, we can hit on it later, but I was curious what your views on code coverage was. Is Flask 100% covered? Uh, no, none of the Palettes projects are 100% covered. There have been very, like, a good task at any, like, conference sprint is always, oh, pick something and add, add more coverage to it. But I kind of stopped running coverage as part of the test suite because it just tended to slow down the tests. And being 100% covered wasn't difficult for any of the, like, the PRs we were getting. So it wasn't like we were missing anything in any new code. It was that 
there's just all this old code where there's these weird pathways that weren't tested or something. Okay. So yeah, I just kind of like turned it off for performance reasons and because it got kind of noisy and people were never sure, like contri- new contributors were never sure, like, wait, am I supposed to fix this or was this coverage because of some other thing that wasn't covered before? All the important bits are covered for the most part. So, so, I'm not so like, let's take a pull request, for instance. So if somebody has a, a feature adding to Flask or Click or something, you're going to have to evaluate by looking, like really just looking at it and looking at what's being tested and what's being added. Yeah, I know that sounds really ridiculous, but and like a lot of work, but like it's never actually been a problem. It's never been actually like something I feel like I consciously okay. thought about. But it just turns out that like every time I've gone back and looked later, it hasn't been the new code that's yeah. not covered. As just part of the review process, I look at the tests and the tests look good and the code looks good. It's usually getting about the same yeah. coverage. Okay, fair enough. Also, nowadays, like all the libraries are stable for the most part. So it's not like we're adding huge new functionality where there's lots of complex, different code paths. We might be adding like a significant feature, but it's one thing, right? So you test the one thing and you can't really go wrong with that. But I do like coverage. It's just, I don't run it day to day. You can still run it against all the projects and it's a good way to like find something to contribute. If you want to say like, oh, time to go figure out how to 100% cover the, you know, blueprint tests in Flask. I think somebody did that. Okay. There are a couple points that are interesting. The notion that if a project isn't 100% covered that already, there is some newcomer stress of if they're adding something. Is uh, how do they tell if they've covered their stuff if the rest of it isn't covered? But also that it doesn't guarantee. Even if you are 100% covered, it doesn't guarantee that it's good enough testing. Oh yeah, yeah. We've had things which have been like clearly 100% covered, and then we'll get a bug report about them anyway. You know. Somebody will not have, because it doesn't cover the things yeah. you can't think of, right? It just covers the contents. Okay, this next one, complete change of subject. How do I test a warehouse ETL? Or how do I test data warehouse ETL code? The ETL being extract, transform, load, which I completely know, I've memorized now what ETL stands for. I did not know it so far. I've seen it a bunch of times. But I don't, I don't know how to do this. Any thoughts? Well... I don't really know what the circumstances are. I mean, are you writing this ETL? Then it's a test like any other, right? You set up some preconditions. You set up your data. You run some function on it. Did it transform it the way you wanted it to transform? Did it get loaded into the database? Okay, test pass, yeah. right? I don't know. That seems like it seems very reductionist, but that's usually my testing philosophy is set up the preconditions, run the function, get the result, right? It doesn't really matter what the thing you're testing is. So then it more comes down, this is why I was saying, like, it's not really clear what the question is, because are they using some, like, external service to store their data and they want to make sure their data is stored correctly or what? I forgot to give credit. That came from Max Hofer. So thanks, Max. Well, I'm sure I can try to hit up some data science people. But I actually have talked about that recently on the podcast. And that really was the gist of it's just like any other code. You should know. If you have a behavior, you should expect what it's supposed to can do. Some of the real question often isn't how do I write a test for it, but how do you think about how it should work? What are the preconditions? What is a small sample set to when you're expecting large data sets? How do you test that on a smaller data set? Things like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this one's kind of fun. US Hills says how to test and mock GPIO pins on hardware for code written on Python but running MicroPython on a device. 
Oh, I have no answer for this one. I need to do more MicroPython. I have a bunch of those little different boards that I've gotten from conferences and stuff, but I haven't really Yeah, so I actually, I would love to hear how people are doing their testing on uh, things like MicroPython and CircuitPython. If they're writing tests for those, how are they writing tests for them? And including how do you, I mean, this is kind of a hardware software thing now. If you're, if you want to test if your pins are working, sometimes you actually have to hook up data, something collection device to actually look to see if the signals are coming out. So, yeah. Yeah. Are you testing the actual hardware or are you like testing just that if a signal came in, you did the right thing, right? And then at that point, you can hopefully your GPO library has some sort of test client where you can fake signals or something, just like Flask has a test client where you can fake requests. Yeah. Right? Interesting rabbit hole to go down sometime. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer this next question either. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll stick it out of there anyway. Nicholas George asks, PyQT apps. So my current hack is to start the QAA application in confdesk.py, but I still get occasional seg faults. PyTest QT doesn't seem to help. So don't know. I do know a few people that have written QT apps, so maybe I'll like, take a look at some of those applications or hit them up. Yeah, you know, I don't even know how... I really don't do GUIs at all. GUIs and graphics are my like two weaknesses. Uh, <laughs> and I'm kind of wondering now, like, how do you test like a TK enter app? Even something that the TK enter that's built into Python. Like if you wrote a GUI there, is there a way to test? I don't know. That? Yeah, I'm not sure. I would point anybody that wants to do uh, QT testing though to a project called Qt Browser. It's Q-U-T-E Browser. And it's written in Qt by Qt. But also the compiler, who is one of the is the person responsible for the project, is a contributor to PyTest as well. And so I know that a lot some of the PyTest changes were done to help with uh, Qt testing. So I guess I would check out how that's. It's kind of nice. It looks like the tests are split up into unit tests, helper tests, and end-to-end -end tests. So one thing I'm aware of is I haven't used it in a long time, but I remember some other. Another group at work using this is a project called Sikuli. I think it's S-I-C-U-L-I -I or something like that. And I think the idea behind it is that it takes like screenshots or it can like actually interact with. So it's kind of like uh, Selenium where it'll interact with the actual components in your web front end, except it'll go a step further and kind of actually move the mouse around and like click things based on like and compare screenshots to figure out if things are oh, working. Yeah. Maybe there's something there, but I don't know enough about it to recommend oh, the yuck. name. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess that I do have something to add then. In general, when testing, a lot of this has to do with the design, your software design. So, for instance, uh, like Flask or other web frameworks, if you have to go through the web interface at all, it's sort of a, you don't really want to for most of your testing. So if you can test underneath that interface, you're better off. So I would do the same with uh, PyQt or with, with Qt or Qt. It's a long habit of mine to pronounce the T separate. Yeah, I learned recently that it was pronounced Qt, and I still can't, can't <laughs> see Qt. Anyway, I would try to architect their application so that most of the work can be tested not using the GUI. Test most of your application without it. Do an API layer just underneath and try to have the GUI as minimal as possible with the logic. And then, in that case, if you have to just even dogfooding it or 
playing with it once in a while might be enough. You might not have to test that, the end user test, the user interface testing, but, or at that point, maybe the PyTest Qt will be enough to test that. So for all GUI applications, I recommend that is try to do as little actual GUI testing as possible. Yeah, I would not want to rely on like pixel capture sort of testing. No, I, I can't imagine it's the most uh, robust. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I would love to, maybe the things have changed and there's really advances in that. So if you're listening and you're like, oh my gosh, the optic testing is advanced so much. You need to know about all of this stuff. Well, then contact me. I'll bring you on the show. Next one, Jason H. Crow, how do you test web scrapers? Hmm. This one, I think... I would assume like you're hoping the web scraper itself is already tested, right? You're testing your code about like, okay, the web scraper has connected to this site and downloaded the HTML. Did I now extract the right stuff from that? And so again, you're testing your code, not the web scraper code, right? So here's a document I would expect to get. If I load that up in the web scraper, does it go through the pipeline correctly? Well, it's an interesting Uh, thing to talk about. So part of what you were just talking about was you were splitting up is splitting up the problem set. So the part of it is a web scraper takes information from a website and then does something with it, comes up with, parses the information, gets different data. So there's really two ends of that problem. There might be more parts of that pipeline. You can test each one of them individually. Big chunk of that would be, I would think, faking the data. So starting with known data, putting information in a web page. But if, like you said, the web scraping part, you'd hope that already works. You could mock up an actual web page, but that seems like overkill. The rest of the tool chain might be what you really want to test. Yeah, this isn't just for web scrapers, but you can, like, if you're using something like HTTPX or the older requests, there's libraries that will let you mock HTTPX or requests so that when you make, like, requests with them, they actually return these mock responses. So like HTTPX has RESPX, requests has responses, and they're these, they, they kind of integrate with PyTest, I think, and they, uh, they let you say like, okay, if HTTPX makes a GET request to this URL, then return a response that looks like this without actually making the request. Okay. Right? So that, that you're kind of like saying like, I expect to get a response like this if the website is working correctly, right? So then you wire that up let the scraper go as if it was making a real request and then yeah, turn back. I didn't know there was a similar thing for HTTPX. That's cool. Yeah, I've, I've started using it in all my libraries. It's okay, nice. let's see. Ben Hancock, let's see, what does he ask? Is it the best practice to put static HTML data in your test directory or to test against or just snippets stored in string variables? I guess this is a similar sort of thing as the web scraper thing, but... We have... There's no hard and fast rule, I think. Like the Flask tests have some things like we want to test that we can serve a file correctly and that when you point the send file function at an HTML file, you get a response with a text HTML content type, you know, as opposed to pointing it at a text file and you get like text slash plain, right? And so we actually do have some resource files sitting in the test directory. But then sometimes you just want to say like, oh, you know, if I return this HTML as this HTML visible in the response and that html can just be a string like that content can just yeah. be a string kind of depends on like how big it gets because if it gets really big it's kind of annoying to read the, the test files themselves but if you do break it up into separate files 
they're now separated from your test file, so it's kind of hard to see the relationship between the two. I don't think it's bad to do it. Uh, like, for instance, it's fairly traditional. Well, this is a different direction. It's not a web scraper, but converter tests, like, for instance, a uh, markdown converts markdown to HTML. It's fairly traditional for a lot of the tools to have like input and output directories of uh, example. Like this input makes this output, and then the tests have to read those directories and convert that stuff. Yeah, I think the black code formatter does that also. It has a big folder full of test input and test output, and so it can run the code formatter against the input and see if it yeah. matches the output. And those big Python files. Yeah, so that, I mean, those are interesting ways to get around it. I would say I don't think there's a hard and fast rule either. It's what is convenient and what's more maintainable. Ryan Morsehead asks, what's the best way to test server-client API contracts, especially if the server and client code are kept in two separate repos? So I think he's saying, like, the API isn't necessarily the server or the client, because the server and the client have both agreed that I will send requests this way, and the server said I will send responses this way to these requests. Yeah. I don't know how to test that. I guess, like, kind of gets into, like, okay, if I change the server, I want to make sure that client tests are running periodically, you know, in addition to like on every commit or something so that I can make sure like, oh, if I committed something to the server, but didn't make any changes to the client, do the client tests still pass anyway, even though nothing happened to trigger those tests. So probably just kind of having a better scheduled testing setup so you can see things failed. Yeah. I don't really have much to add. So let's move on. Oh, this is a cool name. Kapil Mature. I probably got that one wrong too. Sorry. How do I test a monitoring tool like Naglos or Neiman? I have never heard of either of these. Never heard of them. I mean, what are you testing about the tool? I think Nagios is like, I think these like monitoring tools are things you like run on your server next and like they'll look at your like, you know, Apache logs or other things to like aggregate information. Or if that's not what these do, there are other tools that do that. Like stuff that like monitors other things. But what are you testing about those? Like, hopefully those tools are already tested, right? And you're using them because you want their features, not because you want to, like, use something specific about them. Or if you are using something specific about them, then you know what your input is. You know what you expect from them. So, again, now you have the two parts of a test. You you set up your preconditions, run it, and look at the results. Yeah, we're kind of going with a a theme here. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of people are just intimidated by, like, I have this giant tool. What do I, you know... They're just not like sure, like, do I need to test it to begin with? You need to be kind of like, at some point, you kind of have to say, like, I am making assumptions about the tools I'm using. I'm hoping they're tested, right? I need to, like, trust that those tools will do the things I'm using yeah. them for and just test the code. Yeah, that so I'm, I'm going to actually cut it off here. We've got a few more, but I don't think they're going to add to the conversation. So we've heard, I guess, a lot of things. There's a, I think a lot of this is a just sort of a testing strategy of a, a testing mindset. And some of it is, like you said, a, a common philosophy or a common strategy of a test of there's a thing happening. I want to set up a precondition, make the thing happen. What do I expect to happen afterwards? And that's a lot of it. There's other things of like your process that you're testing is really a process. It's a multi-stage thing. Test the pieces. And sometimes if you're depending on something that is undependable, like a service that might change, then we'll mock that or fix that or something or put your own HTML in. And then also don't worry so much about testing the parts of your system that are written by others. I would say like 
Yeah, don't worry about it too much. I mean, definitely be aware of the things you're using, right? Like maybe go and look like, hey, are the things I'm using tested? Because that probably should factor in your decision to use that thing a little bit, at least. Especially if you're going to put that in production. But yeah, at the end of the day, test your code. Don't test yeah. code. And then also, the, if you've got multiple moving parts, fix most of the parts. Not that they're broken, but make a lot of the pieces not movable. Like, for instance, the client server stuff, it's actually kind of great that they're in two different repos because one of the things you can do is you can update the server but test against an old version of the client, make sure that still works, and do stair-step sort of things. Don't change them both at the same time. If you do need to change the change the API, that's a known to break, and you're going to have to change both at the same time. So, I mean, yeah. we kind of do that with the libraries too. Libraries have to sometimes break their API Hopefully with deprecation warnings first. <laughs> yeah, like I, so we were discussing before we started recording, like, oh, some of these can be grouped together. But in the end, like, I think all of these kind of boil down to like this, that same sort of philosophy that you just said, like nail down as many parts as you can, identify your inputs and your outputs and what function you're actually testing. Do that test and avoid testing. Yeah. People's code. Also, it's not easy. Nobody said it was going to be easy, but. We'll definitely have to have you on some more to talk about Flask at some point, but thank you so much for going through this list with me, David. Yeah, this was fun. We can definitely talk about Flask another time. Okay, cool. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thank you, David, for coming on the show and for all you do with the Palettes Project. And thank you, Datadog, for sponsoring. Visit testandcode.com slash datadog to get started. Thank you, Talk Python Training, for sponsoring. Check it out at talkpython.fm slash test to level up your skills and enter to win a free course by joining the show mailing list at testingcode.com slash subscribe. And thank you to all the listeners that support the show through Patreon. Join them by going to testingcode.com slash support. All of those links are in the show notes at testingcode.com slash 129. That's all for now. Now go out and test something.